My Twitter feed lit up yeah. in the last month from, of all places, Chile. Are these the pitchforks that Nick was warning us about? I think so, you know, because in a society in which people now are better prepared and better educated, they also expect something better. And at the moment, you know, many people are, are not getting that. There's a lot of anger that is based on, on that tension that people are better prepared than before, but they're getting less From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, where we explore everything you wished you'd learn in Econ 101. Hola, Pitchfork listeners. This is Gustavo from Santiago. The Pitchforks have come to Chile. Every day for the past month, the Plaza Italia has been overrun with hundreds of thousands of demonstrators who have come to protest a deeply unequal society. It turns out that the government favored a small elite in lieu of the people for far too long, and the country decided it had had enough. Citizens have been protesting due to, among other things, low wages, mismanagement of public funds, increased cost of living, healthcare problems, and perceived abuse of citizens' pension plans, not to mention enormous income inequality. Since the beginning of the protests, more than 1,500 people have been wounded and 20 killed in violent clashes, including at least five killed by live ammunition. The riots left a lot of destruction and ashes in their wake, not only in the capital Santiago, but in many cities. Luckily, it was relatively short-lived, only a month or so, which is very brief compared to demonstrations that have taken place in other countries, some of which are quelled with military force, continue for years, or never succeed. The government has given in to many of the demands of the people, and we are emerging from this a better country. Led by young people, Chile has woken up. The population is now demanding the resignation of conservative president Sebastián Piñera. Despite government concessions and the resignation of several ministers, anger has not subsided. The country's pain runs too deep. So a big thanks to superstar Pitchfork Economics listener Gustavo from Chile for sharing his personal story and that material. That was incredible. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm Paul Constant, and I'm a writer at Civic Ventures. Well, Paul, the Pitchforks do appear to be coming. It's true. <laughs> yeah, the shit is hitting the fan. <laughs> Uh, all Our over podcast the place. name is yeah. revealing yeah, itself. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as you may know, my Twitter feed just lit up yeah. in the last month or so from, of all places, Chile. Yeah. And that's because there's been this crazy uh, wave of protests that have occurred because inequality has gotten so bad there. 
Here's a quote from the LA Times. From Chile to Sudan, Lebanon to Colombia, mounting anger and frustration over rising economic and social inequality, political corruption, and disillusionment with democratically elected and authoritarian governments have led to a wide array of mass protests in recent months. Yeah, and there was this really interesting study recently that analyzed 843 protests in 84 countries between 2006 and 2014, found that the main causes were economic injustice and perceived failure of political systems. So the Chile protests began with just a 3.75% subway fare increase in Santiago. And a couple hundred public high school students uh, swarmed a metro station to protest it, and the state responded with violence, which did not go well. Riots uh, followed across the country, and more than a million people protested on October 25th. To be clear, this is serious business. There are 26 people who apparently have died, thousands injured, more than a billion and a half dollars of uh, economic losses for business. But the subway fare was the spark, but it's really about inequality. And just to zoom in on that, Chile's income gap is 65% higher than the already egregiously awful OECD average. Uh, it has uh, the highest level of post-tax income inequality in the OECD. So it's not surprising that people are pissed off. There were taxes on uh, on WhatsApp messages that would that set right. off, uh, and it's it's funny because the the inequality is so huge, but it really is you know it's the the cliche about the straw that broke the camel's back. It's the right. one tiny thing that becomes the focus for an explosion of of outrage that has been sort of gathering for years, yeah. decades. And uh, today on the pod, uh, speaking of Chile. We get to chat with a friend and friend of the pod, physicist, economist, and entrepreneur, Cesar Hidalgo, who we've had on the pod before talking about economics. Yeah. But Cesar is Chilean uh, and deeply connected to what's happening in Chile. And uh, he is going to talk to us about his perspectives on that and what needs to happen down there and just about inequality in these protests in general. And his his role in the protest. That's which right. Is, which That's is, right. Uh, he's he's done some really program. interesting things. So as always, it'll be amazing to talk to Cesar. He is one of the most uh, uh, interesting and brilliant people that we've ever come across. My name is Cesar Hidalgo. I'm a founder of DataWheel, and I'm also a professor at the University of Toulouse, Manchester, and Harvard. So Cesar, you have joined us uh, because. You're super interested, obviously, in inequality, as we are on the podcast, and you are also uh, from Chile, where there has unfolded a shitstorm of protest over inequality over the last few weeks. So tell us about that. It's a very politically active place right now, Chile, uh, and I think it's, it's hard to explain to someone from the outside because, of course, there's, there's a lot of actors and, and, and there's a lot of tension among them. But if we were going to simplify the situation, is that in the middle of October, uh, there was a call for people to evade subway fares. That call was received with some sort of hostility on behalf of, of the government, you know, and it escalated quickly into protests that, you know, became massive. Some of them, you know, had some violent components. And what happened is that in a couple of days, uh, there was this, Saturday, you know, in which over 70 subway stations were burned, 
and more than 100 supermarkets were destroyed. And that was like really like a life-changing moment for everybody that is from the country or was in the country because it marked the beginning of an era of uncertainty that hasn't stopped until today. So uh, since then, you know, protests continue ongoing, but also there are other groups, people identify them as, you know, groups of uh, organized crime, like drug dealers that have used the chaos as an opportunity to loot and destroy, you know, big parts of cities, like basically the commercial neighborhoods where all of the stores are, are one next to each other. Uh, the government, you know, has not been able to deal properly with the situation. Uh, the police is not well prepared to participate of, of, of this type of activities, and they've committed many acts of civil rights violations in the process of trying to keep the situation under control. The president now has single-digit support, you know, and the only thing that happened that was a little bit more substantial but is still debated is that there's going to be a referendum next year to decide whether there's going to be a new constitution if the referendum is approved. There's going to also uh, be a question about uh, how that new constitution is going to be written. And then there's going to be another referendum to exit that process that would have to approve the new constitution. So Chile is in a very politically active situation. The decisions are going to probably take place next year. But at the moment, you know, uh, like, like I think many people are trying to kind of like see how this is going to evolve because honestly, it's something that it, it's very chaotic, you know. There have been other economic protests in Chile, other other protests inspired by the economy in Chile. Does this feel the same? Is, is there something different about this one? Absolutely different. So Chile has a tradition of protests, you know, and and, you know, you, you can be cynical about it and say that the students protest every time, you know, they're, they're, they're going to go into exams because there is some sort of annual regularity to protesting. There's no protest on, on recent history that uh, has been as massive as, as this one on the side of the peaceful side of the protest and also one that has been as destructive on the side that has been, you know, a more let's say, aggressive, you know, like 70 subway stations. Subway stations are, are made of concrete and, and metal. They don't burn. <laughs> so you have to burn. Uh, and also the number of civil rights violations that Chile has seen is something that Chile has not seen since the times, you know, of the dictatorship, even the early dictatorship. So this is really an event that, sure, maybe you can say it's not unheard of in the entire history of the country, but definitely it's an event, you know, that is a 40 to 50 year event. It's not a two to three year event. So who is protesting? Many people are protesting. And part of the thing that makes this situation complicated is that if you look at it from abroad and you say, okay, people are unhappy and there's inequality and so forth, you know, and you see the massive protests, you, you kind of like get a simplified view. But myself being someone from the country, I get access to all of these different little bits of information. So there are protests and there is unhappiness, but within that context, there are many different smaller groups that are trying to capitalize on the general mood. So just to give you an example, like groups of people that work on transportation, such as truckers or bus drivers and so forth, they organize to do protests so that they would remove fees that were owed to uh, tolls. You know, in Chile, there are many tolls that uh, are private because many highways were built in a model of, you know, privatizing and, and, and providing license for private companies to build those highways in exchange for collecting tolls. And 
in that case, the guys are using the opportunity that the country is in a moment that is that is uh, very difficult to like push their agenda. And they kind of like, you know, got something out of it because there was an announcement that there was something going to be done in that way. So what I'm trying to say is not that this protest is about transportation or tolls. What I'm saying is that there is a leaderless protest that has a lot of unhappiness because the conditions are bad in Chile, you know, for many people. And the consequence is that many different groups are trying, I think, to capitalize on that, which makes the situation like more complicated because there isn't kind of like a set of demands that I would say would, would satisfy everyone. The ones that may satisfy a large number of people, though, are demands regarding, you know, pension reform and demands regarding, you know, wages, because those are like two issues that are very transversal and affect lots of people. But just like there are social demands in terms of pension and wages, but big part of the protest has been about doing a constitutional assembly to create a new constitution, that's people, for instance, you know, that, you know, their main point of concern is that the constitution that Chile has right now was a constitution that was approved in 1980 during Pinochet's regime. Therefore, even though the constitution, you know, might have some parts that are reasonable, they consider it completely legitimate and their main point of protest is to remove the constitution. Other people, you know, don't want to change the constitution, so that's why there's going to be a referendum. Other people, you know, are m more concerned about the social agenda, pension reforms, you know, me, uh, wages. Other people are just trying to see what they can get for their own group. It's a complex environment in which everybody's trying to get what they can. As you know, uh, Nick wrote a piece a few years ago now called uh, The Pitchforks Are Coming, talking about income inequality. And he talked about these sorts of uprisings that always happen when there's sufficient inequality in a society. Do you think that there's a relationship between that? Are these the pitchforks that Nick was warning us about? I think so, you know, because what I think it's, it's happening here at a larger scale is it's a little bit of the following. So if we think about it, it has been 30 years since 1990. And the world has changed a lot since 1990. You know, there's a whole new generation of people that now are, are not just adults, but they come of age, you know, they, they've penetrated society and they're now entering kind of like what their life is going to be. And like previous generations, these people have a, a strange combination. On the one hand, they're better educated than previous generations. You know, 32-year-old, a 34-year-old Chilean today, on average, you know, has higher levels of education than, you know, a 32, 34-year-old Chilean 50 or 60 years ago or even 30 years ago. There's more people that finish high school. There's more people that go to college and so forth. But when it comes to the share of income that these people are receiving, many of them, you know, are receiving relatively small shares in the U.S., the intergenerational inequality has been in the news quite a lot recently. And I think that causes attention because in a society in which people now are better prepared and better educated, they also expect, you know, something, you know, better from their adult lives. And at the moment, you know, many people are, are not getting that. And the conditions to make that happen don't seem to be clear. So I think there's, there's a lot of anger, you know, that is based on, on that tension that people are better prepared than before but they're getting less for, you know, all of that preparation. Yeah, it's super interesting. And, and, and what's also interesting is how many global protests are taking place right now. It's not just Chile. It's Lebanon, Iran, Sudan, Colombia, Ecuador, Iraq, Mexico, Mexico uh, yeah. 
France, the yellow vests in France. I mean, surprisingly, the only place where we haven't had broad scale protests since at least since Occupy is the United States. Like in Chicago, they tried to, sorry, in, in Seattle, they tried to evade the subway. They did in New York, but they last a day. They go home the next day. Yeah. yeah. What should Chile do? That's a tall question. I, and I think there's no shortage of people trying to answer it. I think there's many different things that Chile need to do on, on different fronts. On the one hand, there is a legit crisis of legitimacy in politics that is going to be very hard to overcome. I think that a new constitution and a hopefully healthful uh, and healthy process uh, to create a new constitution might go a long way to help solve that political crisis because it's not just the president, but like in general, you know, congressmen and, and politicals in general are not very much appreciated by the population right now. But that's not going to solve all of the problems. That might kind of like bring some sort of stability for, for a certain period of time. But Chile does need to take risks and enter more sophisticated economic activities. And for that, there has to be a rethinking of the model that the country has regarding growth by both the authorities and the private sector because both of them have been very, very conservative in the way that they try to develop the country. They've stuck to kind of like an idea of static comparative advantages in which we should do what we're better at, because that's where the highest profit margins are. And hence, they have underinvested in science, in education, in startups, in, you know, VC funding, in biotech, wherever, you know, there would be a growing market of the future that is a losing market of today. Chile has not invested. It has been investing in things that are very secure, very profitable, like copper mining is super profitable, but that you know, are dead ends from a development perspective. So there, there needs to be, besides a political change, there needs to be a new development strategy that is really focused on trying to get some moonshots on new sectors that can create an economy that includes you know, uh, all of this educated population that Chile has right now that uh, are, are excluded or are doing menial jobs, you know, that, that clearly do not satisfy their intellect, nor, you know, their standard of living that I think they, they deserve. Talking about inclusiveness, you're working on a solution here that I think is really interesting. Uh, you know, one of the things about Occupy, it, it got a lot of political work done, but it was leaderless and it, it didn't really have a direction. And you have launched a platform uh, for Chileans to directly participate in policy conversation. And that seems like something that could not have existed, you know, 20 years ago or, or maybe even 10 years ago. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. So when everything went uh, south in Chile, I was very shocked. And, and I ran a software company called DataWheel, which specializes in, in the creation of data integration, distribution, you know, platforms and solutions. So we have a very sophisticated software stack that allows us to build very complex websites very quickly. So I talked to one of my engineers in Chile and I asked him, you know, uh, Carlos, are you thinking about building a platform? He like, yes, you know what I'm thinking because, well, this is what we do. This is what we could do to help. So this was like four or five days, you know, from the moment in which uh, everything started. So we say, okay, let's, I talk to the rest of the people in my company, say I'm going to take a small team of five people, you know, to do a platform and we're going to do it from one day to the next. So we had a, a meeting at, at, at uh, lunchtime, you know, we talk about different interaction paradigms. And what we decided is that people were going to be on the street protesting. Therefore, we needed something that was good for mobile. So what we did is I collected a list of 90 proposals from a think tank 
that includes lots of lawyers and economists and people that work on policy issues. And we put them together on a website in which the proposals appear side by side. And we ask people, which you prioritize? Would you prioritize a new constitution or to raise the minimum wage? It doesn't mean that you have to have one and not the other. It means that at the end of the day, time you know, is, is finite, and hence you have to kind of like sort the to-do list and see what you're going to do first, what you want to try to do second, and so forth. And so what have you learned about what Chileans want in terms of policy? So we launched that you know, the next day on a Thursday, October 24th. And it went super viral, so viral that it like crashed our servers. You know, we had to kind of like bring now the whole team of Data Wheel to kind of you know, scale this up. And we got over a million preferences collected in less than 24 hours. Uh, and we are now uh, near 8 million preferences collected. So we've done many waves of data collection. And what we find is that, first of all, you know, this is a very interesting experiment because unlike social media, that is a divergent medium in which everybody is talking about different things and everything that gets said gets split into a billion different nuances that start a billion different conversations, this type of media has guardrails and hence, it's convergent rather than divergent. And we found that, you know, the list that people produced made sense very quickly. So in the list of the first week, the things that were on top included, like, the pension reform, you know, uh, increasing the minimum pension to be at least the same as the minimum wage, because the minimum pension now in Chile is below the poverty line. So it's about $150 a month, you know, so of course nobody can live on that. Then we also found in the top of the list a lot of items that were punitive towards the elites. So, for example, one item was to have effective jail for people that have committed a tax fraud, okay? To have effective jail for people that have been in collusion. In Chile, just to give you some background, like pharmacies and other producers of, you know, like chicken and, and, and paper, you know, were found to be involved in price-fixing scandals. And there were many price-fixing scandals during this decade, and people didn't go to jail for the price-fixing scandal. So those punitive measures came out on the top of the list. You know, the Constitution came towards the top, you know, came in the first week, I think, around 22, 23, you know, out of 90, which is very much on the top. And on the bottom of the list, we know we found things that were clearly relevant that told us that our method works, you know. For example, urban highways were not at the top of the list, or in most recent wave collections, um, data wave collections, we found that, for instance, you know, reform of the mail system or making Chile a federal state are things that don't get support and are at the bottom of the list. So we do find things at the top of the list that make a lot of sense, you know, that are at the heart of what many people agree. And, you know, on the bottom, we find things that don't. So it shows that the system appears to be working. So security for people who play by the rules and consequences for people who don't. That seems to be the part of the theme that you're, you're talking about here. For sure. You know that Chile has this, this 401k type of pension system that, that pioneered in the 80s. It, it resulted in very meager pensions. And at the same time, the people that manage these pension funds do quite well. You know, and the pension funds also, you know, have uh, huge profits because they basically, they can capitalize on the profits, but they pass on the losses to the contributors. So, so people feel very exploited. And I think I would divide the protest between, you know, what younger and older people want, because we saw that also in Chile Gracia. The second week of Chile Gracia, we were super viral and we were on every morning and every late night TV show. And they had the politicians, you know, that are in Congress discussing our list on TV. And that brought a wave of traffic that was people older than 40, older than 50, which were people that were on TV, scared about what was happening on the streets, not leaving their homes. And in that week, everything that had to do with pension reform, of course, did really well on the platform. 
Why? Because, well, these are people that now have worked all of their lives, you know, since their 80s to 2020. And in these 40 years, they have been contributing to this pension system that now they realize wasn't as great as they expected. So they're very unhappy because they're, they're unable to retire, many of them. And the, the ones that don't have, you know, contributions in those pension systems and they have to deal with the state pensions, they, they really have nothing to rely on if, if they would not have a family member that completely support them. Do you think this idea of uh, basically extending a new, you know, creating a new way for people to participate in democracy is extensible to other countries? Well, we have four Open Classia projects working now, one in Chile, one in Colombia, one in Georgia, one in Lebanon. The one in Lebanon has done quite well, you know, uh, and has collected about 300,000 preferences by now. So I do think that these projects are extendable. And the intuition that I have is that I don't know if there's going to be any online or partly digital democracy by the year 2030. But I would be surprised if there wouldn't be at least one by the year 2100. Because as you engage younger people in the evaluation of these type of tools, they seem like second nature to them. You know, I, I do think that technology has changed extremely fast, you know, and there are ways for people to participate and, and coordinate activities online that governments have not been able to, to adapt to. And there's a generation of people that are expecting these things to happen. So at some point, someone is going to break the code and is going to figure out how to do this better. So far, I would say the best example that we have is the one of Taiwan, which I assume you guys are familiar with. Yeah. But that hasn't replicated well in other places. You know, in the case of Chile Crasia, we did have massive participation, you know, at the moment in which the, the situation was the most politically active. But sustaining participation over time is difficult. And that brings us to a whole set of questions of, of how do you scale ability of people to, to pay attention to these things, you know, with AI and other technologies. We should stand what up in the United States and see what happens. <laughs> well, hey, if, if you help me support that, you know, I'm doing my oath for citizenship next week. Okay. You know, so after next week, whenever you want. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think uh, we'll, we'll have to talk about that further. So there's something we, we ask everyone we talk with, and that's, uh, why do you do this work? Why do I do this work? To be honest, you know, because it helps me learn. So imagine that like in the heat of the moment when everybody was biting each other's heads off, we with a group of like 20 something years old, we created this platform, we launched it. We had hundreds of thousands of people participate, giving us tons of data that then we, we made openly available. And we now have network of preferences for hundreds of policy issues that has been generated by hundreds of thousands of humans that allow us to understand uh, the, the transitivity and the, and, and the rankings of preferences in ways that we never could. So to me, this was a great learning opportunity. You know, we did get insulted a lot. You know, a lot of people take these things, you know, uh, more political than, than they are. You know, they think that if the tool was created, you know, it must have been created by one of the incumbents. So many people accuse the tool, for example, to come from the Communist Party. And then when other uh, people... Uh, from the right shared it. They accused it to be kind of like a Trojan horse, you know, from the fascists, you know, because it's hard for people to understand kind of like one of the things, not as a sort of brainwashing exercise from one of the sides. But 
I think it was an amazing learning opportunity. And I think probably there's going to be a, a, a lot of papers that we're going to be able to write from that data, a lot of lessons that we're going to be able to learn. There's a lot of people that work on algorithmic decision making or using algorithms to augment social decision making that have been working in the context of theories and they don't have too much data. I think this is going to be data that's going to be valuable for that community. So learning definitely is my number one goal. And, and the only way to learn you know, is to jump into the deep end of the pool and, and start swinging your arms and legs and see if you float. <laughs> Cesar, you always float. That's, uh, that's what I know about you. So, <laughs> uh, Well, listen, thank you so much yeah, for taking time out to talk with us about Chile. I think what's happening there is really interesting and consequential. Obviously, there have been some people who were killed and hurt, and that's a very uh, serious and terrible thing. But I do... I do think it's really important. Obviously, we wouldn't be doing a podcast devoted to it if I didn't believe that it's really important for people to stand up against the rising inequality uh, in their communities. Uh, eventually, you know, because you, you have to do it or it's going to get worse. <laughs> anyway, my friend, thank you so much for uh, chatting with us. Yeah, congratulations on your uh, on your citizenship. That's yeah. very exciting. Yeah. You. So I, I enjoyed talking with you, and like anytime you want, I'm I'm here to discuss ideas. Okay, thank you, Cesar. Thank you. Okay, take care, thank bud. You. Bye. Bye. So where is Chile right now? As of now, in early December, uh, the protests are still ongoing. The government uh, in November agreed to hold a referendum uh, in April of next year to replace the constitution, which was written under a dictatorship. Uh, so a neoliberal dictatorship. Well, <laughs> <laughs> voters will be asked whether they approve of the idea of a new constitution and whether current lawmakers should serve on the commission that would redraft the document. So they, they have an opportunity to start completely over from scratch. Yeah, interesting. Um, and this really speaks to uh, the power of organizing. I think in the 21st century, you know, there are so many tools. This protest that started as uh, 200, mostly high school girls, mm -hmm. you know, who decided to 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 protest uh, tiny, what amounts to a tiny transit fare can turn into a nationwide uprising. And I think that what we're seeing here is, is something new. Uh, you know, I don't think that the the policy app that that Cesar is working on is is going to be the next you know uh, constitution, but it might be the beginning of the next Articles of Confederation. Yeah, it's certainly know. the beginning of the next conversation. Yeah, which is super interesting, and and uh, I'm intrigued. I think that we'll continue to talk to Cesar about this technology. I think it'd be a fun project maybe for Civic Ventures. It'd be interesting to do it in the United States and see where it took us. Yeah. Think um, about what, what we might've done if we had it in Occupy. That's um, right. That's right. Know, it's just that's a right. few years too late. And you know, I think the problem that the technology tries to address is a very real one, which is that people feel strongly that their interests are not represented by their democracies. Yeah. That, and, and this is true. This is just bit. This is the fact of the neoliberal era is yeah. that all the political parties were captured by elites, both the left and the right. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, economic inequality got worse under Republicans and Democrats, leftists and rightists, essentially across the Western world, because all of those folks were in the thrall of a bunch of economic ideas that basically told you that if rich people got richer, that would be 
good for everybody. And turns out not to be true. And now we're all paying the price for it. Um, but finding new ways for people to express their sentiments in a democracy and having it be enacted, I think, is what it's going to take to get democracy back on track and get, you know, get societies working in the way that we ideally like them to be. The holidays are coming up and we're going to take a break. And as a consequence, we're going to reissue one of our favorite episodes uh, called What's the Trick in Trickle-Down Economics, featuring uh, the amazing historian Yuval Harari and our friend, uh, the uh, neuropsychologist Molly Crockett. It's one of our favorite episodes. If you have not uh, heard it, you'll love it. And if you had, it's worth re-listening. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with the Young Turks Network. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.